Hi, and welcome to the Blue Morpho podcast. I'm Hamilton Souther, founder of Blue Morpho. And today I am honored to have Alistair Longer from Berlin on the podcast with me. Uh, this is a, a cross-continent, cross-international, uh, global podcast at this moment. Alistair, thanks so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Hamilton. Uh, for those who don't know you, um, I would love it if you would share a little bit about yourself and uh, where you are today in your mission, what your mission is, and uh, you know who you're currently working with. Yeah, so um, the outward-facing avatar I consciously built uh, is coined Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change. So... When you Google catalyzing radical systemic change, you will find a podcast and a website where I share quite a bit about me. So I work as an agent on behalf of a portfolio of organizations that yeah, try to tackle the challenges we're facing collectively from ultra large scale infrastructure change, most of it invisible. So like what is the currency design we're currently using? Or how do we design cities? So I advise on a think tank, which is called Dark Matter Labs, amongst other things in my portfolio. Um, another piece in my portfolio is building up Cohere, which is a member-owned co-working and co-living uh, community connecting spaces in Germany, in Guatemala, in Peru, in Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil. So we're starting with these uh, six properties um, there's more to share. I will also uh, play uh, a role in the global rollout of Holochain. Holochain himself or themselves, coining themselves, not a blockchain, though there are uh, distributed ledger technology. They're basically challenging the underlying assumptions of uh, yeah, all of the existing layer one uh, crypto infrastructures and truly aiming to build uh, the yeah, next evolution of the invisible infrastructure for the for the next internet to be really uh, decentralized. I think that's sufficient for this like personal persona. I would like to end maybe the intro with where I am personally. I will turn 44 pretty soon. And um, most of my life, which will then be part of the unpacking my healing journey and my waking up and the healing journey, I was really haunted by nightmares, panic attacks, and a pretty early uh, traumatic childhood episode. And since six years, which I always coin as the breakthrough in my trauma therapy, I'm finally like really stable and can funnel the amount of like life force or life current or chi or prana, whatever you want to call it, through me for these many endeavors where I, yeah, really try to make a difference. So I think that was quick, but should give the people like a soul picture from Alistair. Well, that's just amazing. First of all, I commend you for your effort in helping the world be a better place. And I love the idea that we think about leaving it in a better state than the way that we found it, that we're actually agents of improvement. And it sounds like literally everything that you're working on, which has a broad uh, scope to it, uh, sounds incredibly important in terms of that mission. So first, I just want to commend you for that. And uh I want to ask, how did you come up with the idea of catalyzing radical systemic change? Mm -hmm. I think there's two facets to share, uh, one of which is my biography. I grew up um, in a community, so I'm really one of these whatever 
couple of few million or so that grew up in what I would call like a community 1.0. So my parents um, don't look really like hippies, but they always did permaculture. So I grew up in a community, basically like semi, um, semi-sufficient and growing our own food and stuff like that. And since my father was founding member of the German Green Party, I really grew up, I think, through the umbilical cord with the systemic question. And then he built up uh, the first PR agency in uh, in Germany, focusing on sustainability topics. And when the Mosaic browser launched in 1995, I built up a database of more than 30,000 30, um, sustainability articles and basically like um, linking all these articles so that people uh, could could find them to whatever, 2,000 um, media uh, outlets, all in the Dach region, so Germany, Austria, Switzerland. We're talking now about the German-speaking countries. And anyhow, the listeners will already have recognized a little bit my German accent, so so much to that. The second answer um, is, is, I really think, an important one, catalyzing radical systemic change for me, seen through the lens of what some people call the integral framework, means that... I don't see myself as an isolated individual, you know, I'm, I'm like, sure, I have a seemingly in, in like separate body, you know, um, but I myself can work kind of catalyzing the radical systemic change within myself, which has been my healing journey, also connected to plant medicine, which I think we will, we will dive deeper into uh, in, a, in a bit. The other one is I also exist in a cultural context and um and I also exist in a systemic context. And again, uh, disclaimer, I'm not saying you need to agree with everything from the integral framework, like all abstractions. It's really just a meta framework, but it helped me in my mid twenties after my studies to kind of really very strategically map my life's journey in this like very short, precious lifetime that we're given and ideally try to combine in my endeavors and also in my portfolio, like the individual work, like which for example, would be working with plant medicine or doing my own meditation and healing journey. The other one is the culture piece where I advise on pro-social, which is a cultural change technique, which works with Elinor Ostrom's work on how to govern the commons. And then, for example, in the systems piece, like advising on like a think tank, like Dark Matter Labs, like that I'm really just trying to basically, um, yeah, still bridge these many divides that still and silos uh, that, that are still out there. In, in, in most of the endeavors. Yeah. One of the things that's been really interesting since I got to meet you is kind of have a, a window into the evolution of community and what is coming out of, you know, might be what was called the hippies in the sixties and seventies. And then this gap, you know, maybe we don't have a name for it, or there is one I'm not aware of. And then now this new generation of community that's coming out that, um, from my experience, and like I say, this window from the outside is much more grounded in terms of the impact that it's trying to make. It sounds like in terms of like a, a holistic form and much more integrated with other systems within society. And so I wonder if you could talk with me about that. How do you see this community forming? What is it? Uh, kind of break it down for us. I think breaking down, I mean, this is purely a subjective, but I think um, ultimately um, good old Hegel, you know, like the the thesis, the antithesis, and then the synthesis. So, so good, good old dialectics. So when I just look at my parents, right, like um, both my parents come from a very conservative background, 
you know you can see that also through the spiral dynamics lens so to say so obviously they needed to needed to rebel against a very quote-unquote spiral dynamics blue so very rigid very religious parents so you know what did they do well they went from whatever for example monogamy to polyamory because my parents are polyamorous for example and and i love them you know because it seems they're one of the few examples who who yeah still live it in their ways you know separate uh, deep rabbit hole and now me as their you know offspring so to say um i found for whatever reason most of the communities that i found in the global ecovillages network or intentional communities or also um, the circles, especially here in Berlin, that n have never lived in community, I found always that I need to give up too much of a healthy individuality. Um, so the classical uh, community 1.0 could, for example, also be like Pune or, um, um, or, or many other things where basically you, you give up a certain part of yourself And now you, whatever, um, all pray to one guru or one lineage or you're all vegan or you're all vegetarian or you're all anti-nuclear or whatever. Whereas the, um, the, the, the new communities that I personally find more interesting um, are more uh, like a hive mind and a hive heart maybe that need a certain infrastructure, they need a, a certain jurisdictional container, they need a governance structure and so forth, but within which there's a much bigger bandwidth, a much bigger difference in between these different uh, individuals. Hence, for example, also me supporting uh, Cohere, which again is not a classical um, intentional community in the sense of like the 60s or 70s. Yeah, in terms of Cohere itself, for those who don't know, what is Cohere? What's its mission? What is it trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with Cohere, basically the main thing that, that we want to do is we want to house change makers, right? So the market for digital nomads out there is just exploding. Like everybody jumps on it. Most of them, obviously, with just another extractive business model, like hence also Uh, three-digit uh, million-dollar sums, you know, given to 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 en endeavors um, like that. So we didn't accept uh, VC money. We're kind of crowdfunded, crowd-raised, um, and we really aim at a, I would say, prototypical first step towards a network state where we say, okay, sweethearts, first of all, it's a member-owned community. So who are the members? So you can't simply become a member. You really need to apply for membership. So what qualifies you as a change maker, as a social entrepreneur, as a spiritual teacher, as a yoga teacher, as a change maker? And then you become part of the community. And with the community, we really try to tackle one of the main challenges for most social entrepreneurs. I'm not excluding myself that, I mean, I've never worked in mainstream, so I don't have assets that are working for me. I never, whatever, earned big consulting uh, money. So I'm in a, in a phase in my life where really these topics of a little, a, little, 
a at least a little bit of security in the old age and living with values aligned people are really moving to the forefront. So from a business to consumer perspective, we're offering housing for change makers in the uh, before mentioned um, locations, Germany, Guatemala, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, starting with these six, most likely also Bali and others were in due diligence with over 50 different properties. But that's what we do. And usually people either live permanently nomadic, which I never did, also not aspire to, but many people really say, oh, at least these whatever cold winter months in Berlin, I want to escape to a beautiful tropical haven and spend three months. But I don't simply want to rent an Airbnb. I actually want to spend these precious months where I like kind of work part-time or full-time or work and travel, but I want to spend this time with values-aligned change makers that ultimately really help me cross-pollinate my endeavor, but beyond the buzzword, really people that know the sector, that have been through maybe some of the same pitfalls than you have been, and really just, you know, help each other. And from a B2B, so business-to-business -business standpoint, what we're trying to aim at is basically building a community-owned land fund, like based on a trust structure to permanently take out of the capitalist speculative market these amazing pieces of property, but co-inhabitate them with the, uh, you know, hive mind, hive heart, whatever you want to call it, but with values-aligned change makers and not just create another extension like business model that just creates more externalities for the many generations after us. Yeah. One of the things I really think is interesting about Cohere and what I see it disrupting is two uh, really fundamental difficulties that I've seen and friction points in this idea of how you actually get change made. And one of them is that you need to have contact with people that are of that same mindset and that share those same values and that can actually help each other and cross pollinate different ideas. And uh, especially as a young startup entrepreneur, you know that there are so many potential pitfalls that other people need to cover and help and support. And the Cohere Network seems like an unbelievable opportunity for people looking for that kind of support in in real life, not just you know the, the URL life, but now the, the in real life, being there together, having community, having the, the support of another person, um, their advice, their mentorship, et cetera, literally right there, that the helping hand. Pardon me. And then the other side of it that I see is this, this question, if you really want to make a change and you're not really participating in, you know, the old way of doing things, you also don't get the benefits of the old way of doing things, which is fundamentally amassing capital over time and having that capital work for you. And it's typically associated in different kinds of assets that are lower risk assets that you know, really grow in value slowly over time. And the one that we know of best over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years is real estate. And this is where Cohere is actually creating a system. It's a new kind of system where there is a, a co-ownership of that real estate that sits underneath the company itself. And um, to me, that's it's just a brilliant model to ultimately support people so that if you really were a change maker and you really are digitally nomadic and you're going to be part of community and go live the next, you know, 20, 30 years of your life in that space, you wouldn't have rooted in essence on the farm, building the farm and the value of the farm, 
you'd have gone and helped all these farms, these mental creative farms, permaculture farms, food forest farms. You'll be part of changing the world for the better. But you'll also then over those 20, 30 years, be able to look back on it and say that you do have an asset base that you you worked on building and that you do have have now that asset that's working for you in the old world economy. And uh, I believe that this model has tremendous potency going forward because of that. Uh, thanks for the flowers, Hamilton. Let's hope for the best. Um, I mean, also to, to finish that uh, part on Cohere, we're early stage, but we're not totally newbies in, in, in the sector. So all of the co-founders work in the sector for plus a decade. And I think the lift that we're trying to do within the next half year, so pretty much up until we meet in, in, in Peru, is like, can we jointly many hundreds, we're couple of hundred with 300 plus now aiming not to grow too fast so maybe being in the range of maybe 1000 or so uh, in few months is like can we the sum aggregate of the hive mind and hive heart really unlock also the investment the values aligned investment to really co-create this first let's say fund one you know that we co-own these six pieces of property together instead of trying to fundraise for one piece of property which is from a hedging against risk perspective anyhow not so favorable and hence most or many products always you know exist in a fund structure and we're doing that community only i think that's good for cohere right this is not an advertisement for cohere <laughs> No, but I think it's important because it's a it's a model that represents a kind of grounded philosophy in the economic systems that exist today. And as part of this change, it shows there's a, a movement of inclusion instead of exclusion and revolution. So what mm -hmm. I, I think is important to represent is that it isn't an idea that is revolutionize everything that exists today, but rather use the beneficial and, and positive aspects of it to be able to support the people who are making this change. And one of the biggest issues in, in dedicating your life to this kind of evolution of humanity is that there hasn't been a safety net built within it. There isn't a way that is uh, understood yet to be part of community, but also uh, economically benefit over time, which is also necessary considering the, the current systems that we face. And so, you know, I agree now's a great time to, sh to shift gears, but, uh, You know, I think it's also important to understand that these models are, are in creation. And if you're in that space, uh, you know about it. But if you're, you're outside of that space wishing for something different in your life and you don't know about it, I think it's important that people start to hear that this kind of exists and uh, these models are coming out and they could offer a wide variety of opportunities for people who are looking to live a, a different or alternative lifestyle. That being mm -hmm. said, your, your alternative lifestyle goes much further back. This isn't where it all started for Alistair. Uh, it goes back to obviously a, a, a bit of a difference in your family structure, which you've been open to sharing. But then along the way, it also comes into your own healing journey and then plant medicines. And so I would love to hear about how uh, plant medicines ultimately came in to influence that healing journey and uh, kind of go on a deep dive into what's going on with plant medicines, the psychedelic renaissance, and talk a little bit more about that. So For us now, paint the picture. Take us into the, mm -hmm. the world of Alistair. How many years ago was it? How did plant medicines come to find you? And uh, what was it like embracing them? And what did they do for you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, first of all, there's a preface. Um, my preface, um, let's frame this. 
let's let's give it a funny biographical notion and a tragic one. So the tragic one was again, I was two years and eight months old. I play in the kitchen. Um, the boiling hot coffee machine, these automatic coffee machines from the eighties, you know, falls over and I burn my whole left upper leg and I, I, I wake up, uh, you know, basically my father driving me to the hospital. And this was always my first childhood experience. You know, I was never able to go before that childhood experience and the result, which only got detected way too late um, was what you would call post-traumatic stress disorder. My coping mechanism was to develop almost prodigy-like mental faculties, like being super good in school and learning to read and write and stuff like that. And um, I then, my coping mechanism was mainly um, um, alcohol and, and, and party, you know? So I was not a heavy alcoholic. I was one of these guys who just like did party a lot in their uh, 20s uh, luckily really luckily and uh, knock knock on wood here uh, i never touched any like hard substance like whatever cocaine or amphetamines but i was a, i was really a booze and party guy and um in my early 30s so actually i i, I don't think you would coin that plant medicine um, i knew that one of my closest friends uh, um, was doing work with psychedelics not like in a party setting so I remember a day when I was 31 where I got administered MDMA from this guy who was not a professional psychotherapist but trained in psycholithics therapy. And I was asked to only focus on one question and the one question was how did you feel before you burnt yourself your left upper leg? And um, it didn't really come to a, a feeling or a solution or nothing came up. And I got administered a dash more, which sometimes can happen. And then suddenly, after I have no idea, maybe two hours or so, you know, and MDMA in a strict sense is not a psychedelic, but I really think it's important to frame then my, my other journeys. Um, and suddenly there was this feeling, which I think you can even hear from the tone of my voice or even more when you see me dancing or doing a workout. I always in my whole life had this incredible, huge amount of life current running through me. But in a way, what happened through the trauma is I was afraid myself of that life force because ultimately I was always afraid of again hurting myself. And in multiple instances, which would be too lengthy, which many trauma tra traumatized people, or I mean, it's an abused word because everybody just uses it. But in my sense, it makes sense. I was really time and again creating circumstances to to basically re-traumatize my myself, you know. And um, this was definitely um, a, a big breakthrough. And from that on, um, also my psychotherapeutical cycles with normal psychotherapists just went deeper. I think that was uh, one piece. And then truth be told, I don't know why. My first psychedelic experience was ayahuasca. <laughs> I also don't know if that was the right decision, but it, it was what it was um, in, in Berlin. And um, uh, I did it with this odd thing because 
it was the thing I was most afraid of, of dying. You know, this was like the, the core wound or the last, you know, guardian um, I thought, right? So I did do ayahuasca and then I did it, I think, way too often, like 30, 40 times or so, like just really like many times. And um, just to paraphrase the first episode with ayahuasca, which was not funny at all, I think it was the highest dose in terms of the DMT component in it. So it was so strong, it just completely blew me open apart. I have no idea. And the hallucinations were so strong that me with closed eyes and opened eyes, I could not really even make a difference, you know, trying to open my eyes and being like less in the trip, you know, was, uh, was too strong. And, um, I think it's good then to say that, um, ultimately it was a psychotherapist with a background in psychedelics a woman in her 70s that works with psychedelics since 40 years and as a trained trauma therapist that a couple of years later, maybe five years later or so, basically told me, Alistair, I don't think that ultimately your healing journey, meaning for Alistair, you know, should mean you should just drink more ayahuasca, which a lot of people are doing out there. And she basically said, I, I will work with you, but only under the premise that you don't do any psychedelics at all, especially not ayahuasca. And then came a cycle of, I think, three to four years or so, where I didn't do psychedelics, where I didn't do ayahuasca, and was really just doing the groundwork, maybe. Really just like, it's not very fucking fancy. You meet this therapist lady you know once a week and you talk about your issues how you handle your relationship your money um, your family issues whatever issues um, you have in life so i think the disclaimer for those listening is just to drink more medicine is not necessarily the answer also disclaimer from a non-dual perspective yes maybe for some people to reach a breakthrough right sometimes a ceremony more can help, but also in many instances, also certainly in Berlin and certainly from many people I meet, um, more medicine, meaning more psychedelics, you know, is not uh, the answer. I think that was a was a big and a very painful uh, learning. So usually she says, yeah maximum whatever every quarter maximum two times a year maybe for some people also only once a year and then the rest is all about integration like what did you see what did you learn what did it trigger and how can you ultimately transform that in everyday life but it seems yeah. i always needed to take the hard the, you know the the hard road the tough the tough cookie thing you know <laughs> i think it, that's an important uh premise to come from as we're seeing this expansion in psychedelic use and this sort of psychedelic renaissance taking place that people are mistaking the role or the purpose of the substances in their journey and i think we're seeing this a lot where people are are both just using it over and over and over again for what they think is a healing purpose and then other people are just using it over and over again for either escapism or exploration and in both of those cases, there's a 
in some in some cases there's a dependency that can be created on that and an actual lack of going into the place that somebody thinks that they're actually trying to achieve. Um, my understanding that in the healing process with ayahuasca down here in the Amazon, they do a series of two to three ceremonies. The locals typically do a, ser a series of two to three ceremonies and that that lasts anywhere from six months to a year. And they only go back and use it again if there's a need. And that would be like, you know, to, to support that healing process a little bit more, but that they would tell you that the healing is going to take six months to a year, but that the first intervention with ayahuasca is going to happen in the first week. And then after that, it would be very much like you say, it's a process of actually working through yourself. And the ayahuasca is used to kind of break the, the break through the, the barriers or break through the mental patternings or help somebody dislodge and create movement where there was stagnation. And then after that, there, it's a process that they describe as working with the plant spirit, which is an idea of this energy is within you and it's helping you and it's supporting you uh, be able to move on. But I think that that's, um, you know, very real and something that needs to be shared in this, you know, new psychedelic healing culture that's coming out that you can just as easily create a dependency upon the psychedelics as you can any other kind of negative behavior or negative habit. And uh, really the self-help and the, the transcendence of the trauma or depression or anxiety or PTSD or addiction or, or just the malaise that people experience um, is actually, a, a, like you say, it's an integrative process. And for people just to keep that in mind, that if you're looking for, you know, the magic uh, support, you can get it from the plant medicine. But really, there's a lot of drudgery. There's a lot of working with yourself and that evolutionary process that comes with that. Through your, your journey early on with ayahuasca, I'm, I'm interested in if you had like transcendent experiences or personal experiences of source or divinity or God, something that you would put within those kinds of terms, if that actually opened up for you, uh, in, in those, in those, uh, yeah, explorations. Mm -hmm. Before I answer the question, I want to end the last piece of the conversation and not necessarily recommend, but just say that I very consciously combined, let's say classical Western approaches to psychotherapy, which are very structured which have like methods and toolboxes and questionnaires and trained therapists and accredited therapists and combining that with plant medicine or mysticism. Um, so I'm not saying this needs to be true for other people, but it certainly helped me in my healing journey to answer your, your own, um, the question of source. So truth be told I almost always can uh, with with a tab of LSD have like source consciousness in an, like in 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 half an hour with ayahuasca it's different at least for me for me ayahuasca is always a journey and I can only coin what I think was on the soul level consciously using the soul level although I don't really believe in the soul, but, but like, let's say the innermost or the kernel or whatever you want to coin it, you know, of our identification, which was the pain that we as humanity, as the dominant species are destroying the habitat, the mother organism, Gaia, whatever you want to call it. 
So I know that this is now maybe eight, nine years ago. So I must have been like 35 and certainly after 50 or 60 ceremonies, I was in a journey. And for the first time there was, I was in a, I was in the future and I saw planet earth perfectly restored. Um, and I saw, saw us as the human species communicating with a lot of other star systems and was really looking a little bit like Star Wars, but very beautiful, like a very utopian or protopian uh, future. And um, then maybe a year or two later, I saw the movie Valerian, which is a kind of a kitsch movie, but very beautiful, you know, kind of a the, the, the most expensive movie ever produced in Europe, which is about a city in the future where 1,000 different sentient species live, live in peace together. And then obviously the evil ones come in and you have, you know, the hero and stuff like that. So I would say the deepest, um, deepest vision, I, I don't know, for me, um, ayahuasca, all my journeys are ultimately very visionary. And when I... I don't know if I mastered the plant. I'm not a master shaman, but now that I've done it so often, kind of, you kind of know the, the road or the, you know, like, like, like kind of know how to navigate it. So I use it more in a sense of, um, I would call it like astral travels. So I was always interested in like, okay, how does it feel inside of the Dalai Lama, you know? But I was also always interested in like exploring the evil. Like how would it feel to be inside of Hitler or, or Stalin or, or something like that? So in that sense, for me, ayahuasca is all, is really has more this like journey uh, component uh, to it. And um, I don't know if that's easy to cut in the podcast. My deepest um, source experience i had through the plant called iboga um which which i did four times um also in a shamanic training also in berlin um not of what you call a full flood so not 72 hours locked in but like kind of 24 to 32 hours really you can't really move and um there the experience was a pretty similar to what I train in Samadhi training. So every morning since a couple of years, um, I do like Samadhi training, which comes from old Vedic scriptures, how you train to basically ask into the witness consciousness, right? And then sometimes, usually this only lasts a couple of seconds, right? The, the witness or what you think is the witness you know, and the subject and the object duality become one. So you have like a unity uh, experience or a void experience or something like that. And on Iboga, this was so profound that I was kind of in that void. And after that void was really just a full hours long, definitely my most intense uh, samadhi experience or enlightenment experience, whatever you want to coin it. I was really just one with light, one with all, and still there, right? But very much in the moment and was really just radiating in ecstasy. And I have never had that on ayahuasca. 
so for me, ayahuasca, I think, uh, will forever be in my life. I think that I will do maybe every once a year or something like that. Like kind of, I think that's round about the rhythm. Um, and also with you, what I want to explore after the healing experience is more like how can I hold the space? How can I be a guardian for to to accompany others into their journey, which is kind of just a different life uh, phase uh, that I'm at. And I think, yeah, part of our encounter is certainly exploring that. Yeah, amazing. In the in the aboga experience, what was that like? That deep samadhi. That what what did that feel like for you? You know what happened? What was space time like? You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was very interesting because um, it was my um, in my second iboga journey. I very much kind of prayed for that or or was invoking that so i really was saying okay now if you've meditated and contemplated on the void you know for whatever 25 years i started to meditate very very early in my life and um so what came was more like a falling into the inside and then it seems a very archetypic archetypal picture was coming and i was really just seeing that one eye the eye of horus and whereas always with ayahuasca still i was afraid of like diving through that or of the dying process or something like that um through the support of the sacred plant and in that sense iboga i was for the first time really just having this okay I just let go and felt like almost swimming through that eye of horrors. And then, I mean, just talking about this activates my fontanella. It's really so funny because I had so many unity consciousness experiences in my life, but never so deep and, 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 and so long because it must have been many, many hours. I think it felt, felt like, for the first time in my life, almost like in my nightmares, but the positive side of it, it felt like falling into infinite black space, void, nothingness. And and it felt like, also like in the darkness retreat, I feel like I want to share also something about like my experience in the darkness retreat a little bit later in the podcast. So it felt like, almost like, consciously inviting that black matter that before anything causal open void space to invite to penetrate the material matter to 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 merge with it to infuse it to penetrate it to kiss it to make love with it so it was a very juicy experience and the only next thing that I remember is that with eyes closed and eyes open, I was lying almost like Jesus on the cross, like on, on the back, but with my arms in this like cross position. And it felt really like a beam of light, like in the middle of my body in between the heart chakra and the hara, really just like this infinite amount of light uh, through my body 
like for many hours. I mean, this was so intense that when the others already went into the integration circle, I was then asking, you know, hey, can I be in a separate room? And I was just lying in the separate room and like beaming with joy and love and light for, yeah, I have no idea, maybe two hours, four hours, six hours, I have no idea, but a very prolonged time. And this I never had in my life, like in such an intensity, you know, of bathing in this stream of light, so to say. After an experience like that, how do you integrate that? And how does that then impact you kind of like going forward? I mean, if I were a listener having not had this experience, I'd be like, I can't relate to that. What, what, what is that? You know? So how does that then get integrated and, and how does that impact you after an experience like that? Mm -hmm. Which brings me, um, I have, you know, my split screen, still a couple of, you know, disclaimers I want to make to those listening. So first of all, don't cling to the experience. Any spiritual master, at least that I trust, would say you can't permanently stay because it's a state of consciousness. It's not a stage of consciousness. It's a state of consciousness. So you will inevitably fall out of it and sometimes be grumpy and overwhelmed and love your partner and sometimes say, oh, this specific thing about my partner I don't like that much or about my business relationship so I think a good thing is really just training your humility um, the other thing is what I strongly recommend for every human being is have a daily practice whatever that is it's not really that important is it breath work is it yoga meditation is also just a word because there's gazillions of different meditation techniques but train your state of consciousness every day without a substance. I also recommend without a teacher. You know, the teacher is only the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. Ultimately, the teacher should give you a technique, a tool, a question or something like that over which you ponder for, for many years. And when it comes to integration, to be very honest, um, obviously, I usually try to take, for example, a full day off, you know, uh, or something like that. I'm more a guy than going into the spa or going on a prolonged walk in nature. Ideally, obviously, you 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 have a certain moment in space-time that you don't need to engage in the daily hustle and grind of normal day, whatever, entrepreneurial life, you know. From those experiences going forward, you go into this healing journey with the therapist who tells you, okay, you got to slow down on the psychedelics. You got mm -hmm. you, too much of that up front. How do then they start to come back into your life? And what influence do they have at that time? How old are you at that time? Mm -hmm. um, that's a good question. Um, so... I mean, this very specific point in space-time in 2017, which I always coin as the breakthrough in my trauma therapy, was in the intensity like a samadhi experience, but very this-worldly, you know? It was like finally, in an odd sense, I mean, it was a 10-day retreat, kind of a 10-day ever-ongoing non-stop group therapy, right? With a type master shaman and a, and a complete rundown of your psyche 
so when I was finally in this like totally overwhelmed, I don't even know my name, you know, totally like almost like psychosis state, you know, she took me and said to me, now you're there. Now you get a one-on-one. -on -one. So I'm sitting in that chair, you know, trembling, crying, you know, snort coming out of my nose, just totally overwhelmed in my whatever state that I was in time and again for 37 years. And then since we were training all sorts of things, she was just sitting in front of me in a chair and was just telling me, Alistair, are you aware that you are creating this? And I was just, ah, 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 snort, ah, my life, ah, the universe, ah, the collective consciousness, this shitty part we are in, in humanity, ah, you know? And then it was really, again, just a bolt of lightning in my psyche. And I had this, what? Looking at her and she's like, yeah, do you get it? Do you get it? Are you here? And I'm like, fuck. She's like, yeah, you create your life circumstances. You create your relationships, your business partnerships, your romantic partnerships. You know, you are the only one that's responsible for that. And that was really just like, fuck. You know, this was so deep and profound. And then she said, okay, like kind of, it was on day six or seven of this 10 day retreat. And then she told me, okay, it seems like from this day on, you can start building what you think you understood on the inside. And ever since, yeah, this cycle of, you know, trauma, victim, you know, um, is really minus 99%. So I'm really, finally, I don't know, like my father, for example, was always like rock solid dude, you know, he was never like whimsy and crying or addicted or whatever, you know, but I certainly was. <laughs> Yeah. And after that, where does then plant medicine come back into mm -hmm. this exploration? Mm -hmm. That's okay. 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 Mm, so we're now pretty in the now. So Magdalena, besides, so, so I hardly ever changed my teacher, which is true also for my spiritual teachers. So Magdalena, a woman from Berlin with whom I did 98% of all shamanic uh, journeys with uh, ayahuasca, San Pedro, uh, mushrooms, and iboga, um, was offering uh, like a shamanic training circle with kind of the same group of people that I knew now almost for whatever, 10 years or so. And in an odd sense, I was not attracted you know, I had this, well, I've done this so often, so, 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 so why do it again? But there was a voice inside of myself that, that told me, well, like going again into the, into the ceremonial setting after subjectively having done the work on myself will just educate me on better understanding what's the setting, you know, what typology of people 
will benefit from it also since I've been working with different plants and also uh, other chemical substances like MDMA, also trying to understand what typology of trauma, what typology of substance really helps um, people. Funny that I'm not applying this in my business yet, but, but separate, separate rabbit hole. We can dive into that in Peru. There's just so many people who now all work as psychotherapists and healers and shamans. I don't know. I don't, at least not at this specific point in my lifetime, I don't feel called to doing that. Um, yeah, so it was more almost the scientist inside of myself, you know, like going again into a setting, but under a very different premise. Yeah. And what plants came back? Where did you find yourself? Did ayahuasca come back? Was it San Pedro? Was it a boga? What, what called you on this other side? Mm. Um, it's interesting because the upcoming weekend, uh, literally the next weekend, I will work with the Virarica, so the guardians of the peyote. So I now throw peyote and San Pedro into one bucket, but I mean the chemical, like the psychedelic compound is masculine. So um, the way I also have a video where I recorded this, which I, I think it, it's coined the psychedelic experience. So I think different plants trigger different parts of your psyche or your chakras. So for me, working with Mother Ayahuasca is almost always just bowing down in front of the great mystery that ultimately it's all a big mystery. We don't know shit. It teaches me humility. Um, it certainly also teaches us to die and to be reborn time and again, you know, a blank slate. Um, usually then people, I think also you combine it with uh, San Pedro, you know, usually after grinding the ego, you know, to then activate the Hara, the solar plexus, the willpower. So it's a very masculine plant spirit. You know, it teaches you directionality, benchmarks, goals in life, things you want to achieve, um, gives you yeah a very clear focus. So um, the complementarity of ayahuasca and San Pedro in, let's say, neo-shamanic settings, I don't think is a coincidence. Um, um, Iboga, um, I don't feel called necessarily to do Iboga. I mean, I don't feel called to do any substance anyhow very deeply, but um, I think there will come a moment where, where I will do Iboga, you know, but um, I feel like it's also now almost 14 years of work with these sacred um, sacraments, so to say. So it feels like a big cycle closing, you know, um, uh, and, and that cycle, I think that's good to riff over to share also with your audience, my experience in the darkness retreat and to share like similarities and differences um, in the darkness um, retreat. I think that would be beautiful. Before we go into the darkness retreat, yeah. I want to go back to this piece that you described about uh, the shaman who tells you that you're creating it, uh -huh. and that you're in this, this moment of, uh, of, you know, catharsis and difficulty and trauma and victimization and, and rationalization and the mental states that go along with that. And I think it's an unbelievably important lesson, which is why I want to highlight it. This idea that uh, we're creating 
So we're creating our reactions, we're creating our mentalizations, we're creating our thoughts, we're creating our feelings, we're creating the way we're tying together information. It's not the complete picture, it's a, it's a lens on our own psyche and our own experience with it. And this idea of us you know, creating, I'm not saying that we're creating the entire universe the way that it is. I'm not saying that we're creating some hologram of earth in a treacherous state, but, but that, that throes of catharsis that you are in, you're creating and you can drop out of it and become still. And I think that's what a lot of the Buddhic teachings are about when they talk about stillness is, you know, the ending of that mental catharsis and reaction. And so I think that's such a potent lesson uh, to highlight for, for everybody is that we're creating our experience. We're creating these cycles that we're in. We're creating our responses. We're creating our thoughts. Uh, but I think it's very hard for people to grasp it in real time that they are the creator of, of that entire paradigm of experiences. So I want to go back to that moment where you actually, you know, were in catharsis and then you dropped out of it for the first time and realized, you know, oh my God, I am creating this. What was that experience like for you? And how did then that play out going forward, uh, sort of that rooting within you more and more to become that centered, uh, you know, stable person, grounded person that you're now describing? Uh-huh. <clears throat> I mean, ultimately, I think it's a it's a lifelong um, process. I think I was always very disciplined, and I think my my invisible black door was always obviously using my psychological problems for like all sorts of excuses, right? Like yeah, I have these problems, and I'm melancholic, and I'm depressed, and I'm addicted, and the world, you know, goes to shit um, anyhow. And the description from my teacher is, which I think it comes almost like from martial arts, she's like, train your willpower. Like, like you, you have no excuse. I mean, I'm not saying when they drop a nuclear bomb on top of my head, but besides, you know, stuff like that, the more responsibility I take for my life circumstances, the bigger is also the likelihood that I find the solutions. And um, what I really like about uh, the teacher, her name is Brigitte, so a woman, is that she brings a decades-long uh, tool set. And when I sometimes speak with her, and I'm also surprised on how deep the transformation is from now and 10 years ago, she, she tells me, hey, Maybe you were lucky because I was a ballet dancer, a professional ballet dancer. So discipline has always been a, a strong point in my life. So ultimately, like meditative practice or a workout in the gym or building a business um, has to do with discipline and practice. So sit your ass on the ground every day in the morning. You know, I do my meditative practice and then... I very consciously do this manifestation techniques, not manifesting like flying spaghetti or that suddenly the moon is not in the orbit anymore, but really just activating the solar plexus, which in neurolinguistic programming you do with primaries. So, so it could be like, um, um, I'm the creator of my thoughts and emotions, for example, right? But you need to create that primary up until you really are convinced that you're creating your thoughts and emotions because if not you just get a secondary that tells you well the guy is talking bogus to myself you know so 
it's an ongoing practice to create these primaries in neurolinguistic programming from the center of your solar plexus or your hara, you know, and really say, okay, you know, that's whatever a certain life phase, you know, I want family, for example, as you know, you know, and children and living in community and be a successful entrepreneur, which pretty much the whole thing in this life phase. And um, yeah, to really take ownership, you know, to really own that and to create that. And when then obstacles come around, really just analyze them and say, okay, where is it where me as Alistair, I can make a difference? You know, you shall know them by their deeds. You know, they say in the Bible, it's really about that, you know, because what you think and feel and what your own internal thoughts are is one thing, but ultimately other people perceive you by what you're doing, right? Yeah. Doug, first of all, I love that. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Taking that forward into, you know, all the things you're doing. I mean, I, I personally see that that's what you're doing. You're, you're creating that a, a life for yourself. And at the same time, it's built out of a series of deeds of consistent improvement and growth for uh, everybody involved. That idea of community and you're in the community. So you're also growing as well, but everybody that is being positively impacted by that. And um, so I want to go through that into now this, the darkness retreat. You, you know, number of months ago, decide that now's the time for you to do a darkness retreat. And uh, what, what were you thinking going into the darkness retreat? You were, you know, interested, what was your intention going in and then describe it to us. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. So as a child, I was haunted by panic attacks and nightmares. And, and one feature was, I was terribly afraid of anything dark. So I could not sleep in darkness. There was always a light on up until my early to mid twenties, you know, there was always a small lamp on. I could simply not sleep in darkness. I would be terribly afraid. So when I first read about darkness retreats, which was in India when I was 21 and read the um, autobiography of Sri Aurobindo, who was in, you know, in isolation and also in a dark, you know, chamber in, you know, but obviously not by his own will. And he then wrote, he basically reached his, you know, enlightenment, you know, in, in darkness. I told myself, okay, this is the oddest, most scary thing that I can possibly think of. Okay, okay, you torture me, you kill me, you throw me in prison, you poison me. I mean, all of that, you know, kind of, I can accept, but in darkness, in a chamber, alone, it's like the oddest thing. So anyhow, um, two years ago, I went to Guatemala and met a guy whose name is Severin Geza, who owns a retreat center, um, and it's called the Hermitage. So I didn't go there because it's suddenly on vogue and, you know, all the clicks go up because some whatever um, famous people do darkness retreats. I really did it at the very end of my own healing cycle with the working hypothesis that I would really just enjoy it. So, so I came there and Severin asked me, why are you doing the darkness retreat? And I'm like, I don't know. I think I will really just enjoy it. And he's like, yeah, but you need to have like an intention. And I'm like, well, the only left intention would be to permanently lose my mind, get full enlightenment and become the next, whatever, you know, Sadhguru, you know, Alistair on the billboards, selling, selling 
billions and having a huge followership and groupies, you know, all of it, sure. And I said, no, I don't really have an intention. And then when I sat alone in the darkness retreat, I still didn't have an intention, but my whole self was so at peace with my journey that I made a wish. And the wish was, I wish it to be a gentle experience. And then I blew out um, the candle. And, um, and what then happened is pretty prototypical. Uh, so there's really not one standard book, which is a pity. Severin wants to write it. But they say, and for me it was the same, so I did it for five nights and six days, um, that in the first kind of two days, your pineal gland produces melatonin. So you're, I, I didn't feel drowsy. You're just like sleeping a lot and then you wake up, you may be taking a shower. I got uh, meals served twice a day through a double door so that you don't get kind of light inside, but you can eat in the morning and in the afternoon. And then uh, uh, after your kind of melatonin is depleted, your, your pineal gland produces serotonin, which is kind of just super mega pleasant. It's really just like popping a pill, but like, you know, endless. You're just like, okay, that's kind of, wow, that's, yeah, that's like vibey, that's juicy, like, <laughs> give me more of that. And... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was really just very pleasant. And then, um, obviously, also what many people are looking for in the darkness retreat. I'm not saying me not, was like what happens after. Because after that, um, your pineal gland produces DMT and 5-MAO DMT. Um, so I remember waking up and taking a shower and taking a meal and just sitting in my meditative practice. So we're now somewhat day three out of these five nights. And then suddenly in a very organic, beautiful, motherly, nurturing frequency somewhere above me, because you don't really can apprehend distance, but let's say 10 meters above me or something like that, um, was really just a source of light like a milk-white source of light. And just like dripping from above into my nervous system. And then the next uh, thing that, that I perceived was just sitting on that huge white ocean of milk-white light. And again, just very nourishing. And then the third one, was like that this like ocean of white light, which for example, through the Iboga experience was like, like a very strong current was really just permeating through my like heart chakra, hara, like the middle of my body. And the thing is you really seemingly see that. So because your eyes open, your eyes closed, doesn't make a difference because it's pitch black dark, but suddenly there's all this light everywhere. And then I slept and was really just, bathing in like, oh, that's like kind of really nice thing, you know, like bathing in light, kind of cool thing. And then I woke up and my kind of autopoietic system had a question. So what do you do if this like white light shows up again, you know? And I said, well, I think I want to direct it through my nervous system 
and different biographical episodes and really see if there's still any healing to do or any damage to repair. So I was, for example, a heavy smoker. I quit eight and a half years ago, but, you know, I was really smoking quite a lot. And so when then this, like, let's say, light phenomena came again, I was really just gently, you know, asking for them to, like, for example, you know, penetrate my, my lungs and my stomach or my pelvis or, like, kind of really just washing my uh, nervous um, system. I think that was, like, kind of day four or something like that. And then on the last day, uh, I again, like, slept and, and ate and meditated so they were not permanently there but pretty frequently like let's say these light waves light ocean waves something like that and then on the last day i also have this like um archetype of the wizard uh, or the magician inside of me i said okay let's play with it and i don't know why but here i could literally show it but you know it you know um my system told me okay let's create Let's create um, forms, you know, with this white light. So I said, okay, now I want to see a flying cat, you know, because I have this beautiful alebrije from Mexico. And boom, there it was like, okay, cool, flying cat in the middle of the room. And then I said, okay, I want to see a whale. And then boom, there was a whale. And then I said, well, okay, that's not kind of odd. And suddenly I was sitting in an aquarium full of like white fish. Anyhow, I mean, it doesn't really matter. One thing that happened... Uh, which I didn't mention, which happened, I think, a day or two earlier, um, was there was also a very short, I have no idea, maybe one-hour episode where seemingly all the still stored stuff that I'm afraid of, like killing, genocide, war, deforestation, plastic in the oceans, whatever, mass murder ring, you know, uh, stuff like that, showed up in a very rapid um, sequence in front of my eyes. Um, and my explanation whilst being in that experience, because I was not really so much triggered or touched by it, I was triggered maybe for... 10 minutes or so, uh, like li li literally just, you know, sensing my hormones change. It's just that I have been in this confrontation so many times through ayahuasca and healing journeys, you know, that I just had this, okay, that's also part of the cosmic collective circus, so to say. Um, I just feel like it's it's also important to mention that, but overall for me, the experience in the darkness retreat like the first experience in the darkness retreat I, I will do that again i don't know exactly when so i can't say what will happen the second or third or fourth or fifth time but for me it has been very gentle very beautiful very magical and also really very deep in a in a in, yeah it's very hard to describe what what, what happens um but I'm incredibly grateful. And I'm also grateful that I didn't do it before. Whereas, you know, like I thought I kind of did too much ayahuasca, for example. And with this intervention, it felt like really just like almost sealing hermetically, you know, uh, yeah, a very long cycle of interventions and searching and wanting to find out and healing and whatnot. It was really just 
very gentle and, and beautiful, very magical. Since the darkness retreat, how has that experience impacted you coming to this present moment? Mm -hmm. I think it's good in the podcast to, to mention my father. I'm very close to my father. He was a very humble guy, meditates since forever, successfully raised three children and uh, 69 now. And he's just such a humble and simple guy. And I think the older I get, especially in the spiritual scene, the less woo-woo language, the less I'm better than you or I found it or whatever. It's really just grounding myself in my everyday life with my current work mode or, uh, I don't know, my fascination for wanting to become a father and kind of accepting that. Let's see if it happens. You're more having this. I think I would like that. I want it now. Almost like ordering a burger. Children now, you know, kind of in that mode. But really just a strong sense of, humility and gratitude i mean i i think i am often just very humble and grateful that i have these degrees of freedom and a german passport and i can do the projects you know that that i love doing and i have amazing friends really just gratitude you know yeah i think that's a beautiful place to to stop the podcast uh what a wonderful thing to come on such an amazing journey and come to this place of gratitude. And thank you for being a change maker in the world and representing and doing and living what you talk about. Um, how can people find you? What's the best way to get in contact with you, find you? What would you like to share? Yeah, I think in the show notes, maybe just add um, my URL. So um, it's Alistair, like the Scottish name Alistair, and then Langer, L-A-N-G-E-R dot D-E. D-E is for Germany, you know, um, because there they see the portfolio, my life's journey. They can see how they get involved in the projects. I have my own podcast. If they're interested in coaching, they can, whatever, give me a ping. Um, yeah, because I don't think it makes sense to separately note in the show notes all these different endeavors in my portfolio. I really think just this one URL is, uh, is sufficient, Hamilton. Awesome. Alistair, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. You're an inspiration, and it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Oh, thanks. Thanks, you beautiful creature. Thanks for having me.